Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I'm really excited for today's incredible panel because I'm here with two of my Lincoln Project compatriots returning to the roundup. Is Politicology fan favorite, Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, a fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, thank you for having us in your beautiful home. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had numerous para desayuno here in our undisclosed location. It's good to be with you guys like this. And also returning to the roundup is Zach Chakowsky. Zach has been a political operative for more than a decade, beginning his career as a field organizer for President Obama, managing the most expensive school board race in U.S. history, and a successful Southern California congressional campaign in 2018 and going on to become our political director at the Lincoln Project during the 2020 cycle. Zach, it's great to see you again. It's good to be here. I had avocado toast for breakfast as your (laughs) resident millennial. (laughs) (laughs) On this week's Roundup, we're going to talk about the latest updates on the politics of January 6th, including the two draft executive orders to seize voting machines and Donald Trump floating the idea of pardoning the insurrectionists if he's reelected. And the Spotify-Joe Rogan controversy. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about a Trump ally pushing to formally expel Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger from the party at the Republican National Convention. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get our plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. There's been a ton of news over the last week about the January 6th attack, about some of the ideas the Trump administration had to cast doubt on the election and what Trump might do if he gets elected in 2024. At a rally in Texas on Saturday night, Trump told the crowd, quote, if I run and I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. He continued, if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. Mike, I talked about Newt Gingrich last week with Lene and Susan and Simon Rosenberg, and Gingrich wrote an op-ed that called the January 6th committee and prosecutors so mean and so nasty and claimed that they were investigating insurrectionists because of their political beliefs, that the whole investigation is politically motivated. Trump is essentially doing something similar here, and I wonder how effective you think this can be, framing Trump and the insurrectionists, you know, the the aggrieved parties and the DOJ and the January 6th committee as the political persecutors. It's going to work until it doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> and, and I say that because, um, look, Trump has this inordinate ability to rally his base. I do believe that, you know, Donald Trump is a unique threat. A lot of people think that, you know, Ron DeSantis could come in or Josh Hawley and fill that void. I don't, I don't believe that at all. I think this is very much a cult of personality. And part of that personality, part of that, that um, ability to rally the troops is by suggesting that he is kind of the defender of everything that they believe in. And the attacks on him are really an attacks on, quote-unquote, the American people, the real American people, and he's kind of this unique defender of all of them. He also has really – he's running out of options. Um, it's why, you know, I think it's increasingly likely that he probably will run for president um, because it's what's going to keep him out of jail. And he will always argue until his last breath that this is all about political persecution – 
because he's his ego won't allow him anything other than to recognize uh, that or to lie about the fact that he lost. Uh, he's a loser. He lost, and um, so so what that means is, and what it's going to require is going to be a strong, determined, methodical push by the investigators to break through that veil, break through uh, this circle of advisors. We're realizing how high this got up, how deeply entangled the web was. I don't believe for a moment that there wasn't anybody in the Oval Office that did not have some sense that these discussions were going on. They could be at a different level, at a different angle, um, but but or different level of understanding, but everybody had to know something was afoot here. Everybody had to know. And once you start breaking off one, two, three of those people and they start turning state's evidence, then you're going to have a really different situation here. Um, and, and I think that the circle around Donald Trump begins to get really, really small and he will lead his merry band of, of Republican mm-hmm. voters over the cliff with him. And it will be a, a sizable segment, but it won't be enough to win elections. And I think that's ultimately what we're probably looking at. You know, one thing that I, I, I struggle with is that uh, Wolf has been cried many a time about this being kind of the downfall of Trump. And, and so I have a really tough time gauging how bad exactly this news is coming out. The velocity is certainly picked up, but I'm curious what y'all think about how damaging this actually is to his hopes politically and how damaging it is to him criminally, because it's just tough to tell for me at this point. Yeah. I mean, we talked about, we talked about the, uh, the criminal investigations, the multiple, the the many investigations and how the walls are closing in uh, recently with uh, former federal prosecutor, Michael Zeldin, who sort of walked us through all of the charges um, and all the liability they faces, not just, not just for the events surrounding January 6th, but also his, his personal financial affairs. Um, and Mike, to your point, the only thing that's going to keep him out of jail is, is a, is an attempt to grab the levers of power because he's, I use this analogy of, you know, the, uh, Luke Skywalker in the trash compactor or, you know, the, right. The, the walls are closing in. There's something very, very sinister swirling in the depths and there's no, there's only one way out for him. Yeah. And look, Zach brings up a really good point. Donald Trump has, in a very unique way for an American president, broken through all of the conventional understandings of what would normally be the end of a political candidacy. It began uh, really by coming down the escalator and saying that Mexicans were drug dealers and rapists. And then John McCain, you know, he he was, you know, was derisive of John McCain and on and on. And what that did was it pierced through the veil of the voters and, and, and the crudeness with which he was approaching politics was something we hadn't seen before. So a lot of professionals and myself included were like, this guy's just going to, he's going to run out of gas. He's going to be run out of here um, because he has violated that norm. The second was um, cajoling really all of the members of Congress on in his party to willingly look the other way while he broke the law. The last line of defense, the last line of defense is the judiciary. It is the courts. It is the legal system. If the legal system holds, he's in deep, deep trouble. If it doesn't, we're in deep, deep trouble. And that's really what I think we're looking at. But I mean, Zach's point is exactly right. Unlike any politician who's never broken through any one of those, he's broken through two and he's kind of in the red zone busting through the third. We're just going to have to see how this plays out. And we keep being shocked every single time. And I think that's your point, Zach. Yeah. And, you know, amongst the base, it seems that his numbers have gone from exceptionally strong to very, very strong. 
But we are starting to see some interesting cracks amongst the kind of Republican elites with Senator, with a Senator from the Dakotas, uh, Lindsey Graham breaking with him, Mitch McConnell continuing to break with him. And so I don't know if that moves the base at all, but there's certainly some fractures that we're starting to see. Yeah. So what you're referring to is after Trump made the pardon pledge, Susan Collins expressed her concerns on ABC's This Week saying that Trump should not have made the pledge. Lindsey Graham called Trump's remarks inappropriate. On Tuesday, Mitch McConnell also came out against pardoning the insurrectionists. He said, what we saw here on January the 6th was an effort to prevent the peaceful transfer of power from one administration to another, which had never happened before in the history of our country, end quote. He went on, quote, 165 people have pleaded guilty to criminal behavior. I would not be in favor of shortening any of these sentences for any of the people who pleaded guilty to crimes, end quote. Mitch McConnell, everybody. Collins, Graham, and McConnell all got elected in 2020, so they don't have to worry about an election until 2026. Uh, How should we be thinking about the impact that being closer to an election could have on how Republicans react to Trump? Oh, it's amazing how much more courageous somebody is when they've got more time between, you know, the day they say something and their re-election. I think that's going to be a huge factor, right? I mean, Murkowski is the only person running for re-election that spoke out after January 6th or, or voted in a way that was speaking out in the Senate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I don't, yes. I I mean, uh, Mike, tell me what you think, but I don't, I don't think that we should be all that encouraged by the temporary, uh, willingness of a handful, tiny handful, three fingers full of Republican elected officials to recognize reality. Yeah. Look, if the future of the Republic rests on Lindsey Graham doing the right thing, I think we're probably in trouble, right? He's going to bounce back and forth depending on wherever the political winds uh, are on that Monday, Tuesday morning. But I do think it is significant that McConnell is publicly standing uh, in contrast to the president. He's doing it in a very traditional, very, um, um, you know, kind of orthodox way, the way Washington, D.C. politicians do. But what that really signals, and I think what people should be looking for, is what he's doing behind the scenes to make sure that this happens, is what communications are happening with donors, with other allied members of the Senate, which he he still holds a pretty firm grasp over. Um, remember, it was just Lindsey Graham, I think, last week or two weeks ago, who was basically chastising McConnell, saying, if you don't have a working relationship yeah. with Donald Trump, then you shouldn't be leader. And now he's basically saying, well, Donald Trump's wrong on this on the January 6th thing. So uh, uh, Lindsey Graham is, 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 is the cowardly, outward-facing person of the Senate. Um, and that, that's interesting to watch the ping pong, you know, match that he plays with himself, but the real player is McConnell who has the leader and has, has a really an iron grasp on his caucus because it's not what he's saying publicly. It's, it's the fact that he's willing to come out and even publicly slightly acknowledge these differences means there's a lot of work. It's like an iceberg. 90% of this thing is behind the scenes where nobody's watching. He's sticking the shiv in with the donors, with the lobbying community, with political consultants, and certainly most importantly with other members of the Senate. Yeah. The, th- the thing that's so craven about Lindsey Graham, I, I want to make, make one distinction about um, the this idea that politicians shouldn't change their views on things, right? Because I think that's one of the I think that's one of the worst things about modern politics. We have this expectation that you have to be so consistent that you never change your views on something. When yeah. in fact, what you want in an elected official is for them to absorb new information, learn, and change their views on something, including mm-hmm. how they vote and and how they how they uh, how they talk publicly. Lindsey Graham's changing uh, colors constantly on 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 Trump, January sixth, on McConnell is not rooted in any principle that I can recognize. It, it's 
purely craven. And I think that's an important distinction to make because people can change their, change their minds about this. And you can actually hold surprisingly heterodoxical views for, the, for your cohort. For example, you and I have talked casually about how it's very possible and, and, and compelling to make an argument in favor of addressing wealth inequality from a conservative ideology, right? Absolutely. We never hear anybody do it, but it would be ideologically consistent to do that. And it would be a surprising position for a Republican politician to make. Be a breath right? of fresh air. Exactly. Lindsey Graham's not doing that. No, no, not at all. I mean, it is totally natural and 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 presumed in the process that leaders who are who are you know, trying to find to negotiate a middle ground with, you know, 99 other members of the Senate will give up some policy positions because of a, a principled way of, of influencing the, the governance of the country. Again, that is not what Lindsey Graham is doing. Well, L- Lindsey Graham is just scared. Yeah. He's just scared and running around like a, you know, chicken with his head cut off. And wherever he's getting pressure at at this point is where he's moving towards. And so today he may be upset with Trump. Uh, tomorrow he's upset with McConnell, and he's just going on the talk shows and and literally day by day panicked. Which we can all you know who knows what the motivation is there, but it, it is rare to see somebody with that lack of spine getting yeah. to this level of 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 U.S. politics. I think the Lindsey Graham story, you know, the, the miniseries is going to be an amazing one. <laughs> it's going to be better than Pam and Tommy. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, one thing I spend a lot of time thinking about is most people who I think are paying attention to the January 6th committee have their minds made up. And I'm wondering what could come out that could change people's minds. Is there anything that could really shift the conversation that people might say that is too much? Is there a breaking point? I'm not sure there is, but, but I hope that there might be. So that's interesting, especially with the uh, listeners, politicology listeners will be familiar with your refrigerator hum right. analogy. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's no persuasion left to be done on January 6th? Sure there is. And it's not going to be a wide segment of the Republican electorate, but there, it will be enough, enough, as I keep arguing, right? is we, we should not be looking at this as a tipping point where half of Republicans are going to bail. If he loses 10, 12, 15 percent, it's over. Right. It's done. Right. And that, that is really where the focus needs to be, especially at this time in American politics, is we can't be focusing on trying to win a majority. We need to be focusing on winning enough. And that's not to, to suggest that this should be done for purely political reasons. Even if the Democrats lost because of this, we should still be pursuing this as a matter of justice. Regardless of the politics, it is the right thing to do. And I do believe that there is smoking gun evidence already in the hands of the committee and in the hands of the Department of Justice. I just believe that this is so widespread and so expanding that new players are being bought, brought into this conspiracy that either strengthens the case against the president, former president of the United States and his highest aides, or it, or it allows for the prosecution of, of many, many others. And I think that that's what's going on behind the scenes and I think that there is political hay and benefits to be made by pursuing this discourse of justice, especially when we see televised hearings. We're, yeah. we're getting this steady drip right now on Twitter out of the committee. And like I said, I think it's a master class on how to you know slowly bleed your opponents to death uh, day by day, just commanding the news cycle. But when the when the when the heavy cannon is unloaded, I think it's going to be extremely significant, and it will be enough to move some of those persuadable voters that 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 thin sliver of voters 
in the right direction. And I do believe that it is being handled quite adroitly uh, at the moment. I think I just have a lot more patience than most of the American public right now. Well, yeah. And to your point about Twitter, to all the listeners who are saying, yeah, but Twitter's not real life. Yeah, but Twitter bleeds into headlines. And that's the refrigerator. It drives a news cycle. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Zach. Is there, if you could wave a magic wand, is there anyone in particular whose testimony you'd like to see? Donald Trump's. Mark Meadows. <laughs> Mark Meadows. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. What about Mike Pence? Pence? Mike Pence. Mike yeah, Pence. Pence is who I've been thinking yeah. about. And Pence, you know, I mean, we've talked a little bit about this over the past couple of days. Pence is going to be a really interesting figure. But what, what listeners really need to remember is nobody has any built-in desire to see Donald Trump continue. If he becomes a dictator for the rest of their life, they're at the peak of their political careers. Their aspirations are over. And don't think for a moment that everybody in Washington isn't keenly aware of that. They are. They're just so afraid to take that first move to, you know, stick Caesar with the knife. Once they, once the first one does it, the others will start jumping in and then you'll have a mob kind of knifing the guy. And they're all just looking at each other saying, who's going to go first? Who's going to take this guy out? And the circle is getting closer. I genuinely believe that. But uh, Mike Pence, for example, has, he's never going to be president. No, he's not going anywhere. He's, he's going to have to come to terms with that. At that point, he can literally become more impactful in terms of legacy for the rest of his, you know, great grandchildren's, you know, as long as they bear his name, what Mike Pence did to bring down a dictator. And it, that, that, that moment will occur to him. What a transformation that would be. I was just thinking one of the most fascinating things about Donald Trump is that he could turn Mike Pence into a hero for, <laughs> for, for Democrats and independents and some Republicans, you know, I mean. Speaking of Mike Pence, on Sunday, Trump released a statement insisting that Mike Pence could have overturned the 2020 presidential election. Trump was reacting to a recent push to revise the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which I talked about that law uh, in my conversation with David Becker uh, in the episode that will go out next Wednesday. In his statement, Trump said, quote, What members of Congress are saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election, exclamation point. On Tuesday, Trump argued that because he believes the election was stolen, Mike Pence should be investigated for refusing to stop the certification of Biden's win, according to uh, Best Levin at Vanity Fair. So, Mike, what do you make of Donald Trump's insistence that as the law stands right now, Kamala Harris has the sole authority to decide who will be sworn in as president on January 20th, 2025. I was going to see if you can make it through that whole statement without <laughs> laughing. But look, this is, it's, this, this is where the conspiracy theories and the lies start to come unwound. And of course, we have all been shocked by the fact that nobody uh, in the Republican side of the aisle seems to care. Right, the voters want to be lied to, and it never escapes me how deep that desire is. It's just lie to me, keep feeding me the the junk that I need to keep going through the day to keep believing something that is silly, and it doesn't matter how looted in reality it is. Of course, Kamala Harris doesn't have that authority. Of course, Mike Pence didn't have that authority. And thank God again for Dan Quayle. And I'm saying that just because I, I like saying that. It's hilarious. <laughs> you, should, you, you need to, you, nobody's going to get that unless you explain. Well, Dan Quayle was the vice president, <laughs> obviously, under George Herbert Walker Bush back in the 80s and early 90s. And uh, as Mike Pence in the final days was being pressured pretty intensely by Donald Trump and the circle of AIDS to, to, to take what was a performative act and and overturn the the votes of the electoral college um, called literally called Dan Quayle, a fellow Hoosier from Indiana, who he obviously had a multi-decade relationship with, to say, Dan, can I do this? And and the former vice president was 
reportedly just shocked and stunned, saying, no, you can't do that. No, you don't have authority. This is entirely performative. Performa, it's, right. It's, it's, this is literally like a parade. It's, it's, a, it's a pageantry to demonstrate the peaceful transition of power. That is the whole point. You cannot do that. And it, it took a couple of phone calls, and, and Pence ultimately did the, the quote-unquote the right thing, at least at that moment. Um, but, but again, I got to underscore, like Mike Pence, if everything ends today, right, Mike Pence goes down in history as this kind of, as this stooge of the Trump peasant, uh, presidency, of somebody who just chose to be the lapdog who sat on, on Trump's lap and did whatever he was told. Uh, and, and that will soil the, the Pence name for generations if, however, he does stand up, and again, he has every reason, his his personal legacy as well as political ambition, to, to stick a shiv in this guy, mm-hmm. Pence goes down as a hero. And there is a reason why Pence's staff is spending hours before the committee. To think that they're not communicating is absurd. Of course they are. A lot of that information is being told through these higher level aides at this point, but I would not be surprised if in a couple months time, Pence comes out and is the first Roman senator to stick the knife in him and brings Julius Caesar down. And look, that's also a really good analogy. It is. It's, it's it, you know, as the tyrant was gathering power in ancient Rome, it was the senators who decided we, could, we don't have any choice. We, we've appeased this so much and so much power has consolidated that we have created a dictator. There is now a tyrant amongst us and democracy is going to die unless we use the last resort here. And of course, I'm not suggesting this. This is a metaphor, but that's literally where it, this is going. If somebody's going to have to pull to draw the metaphorical knife and, and politically end this. And once it begins, the mob in the Senate will, will eat him up. And then there will be a race to succeed him. There will be an enormous vacuum. Yeah. And I think it will be so big, it could be ideological, it could be personality, it could be all sorts of things. But the Republican Party, um, or at least the center-right, I don't know if the party can, can actually survive it, but the center-right, the, the vacuum will be so big that there will be a mad scramble for leadership. But it is important, again, for listeners to remember every Republican in the Senate really has a desire to see this guy gone. Yeah. You know, it's tough to know somebody's intent and it's really tough to know the intent of somebody who was born 300 years ago and the folks that wrote the constitution's true intent. However, I feel relatively confident saying the intent was not that one person could overturn the results of an election. Yeah. And that that is the Presidents are not Kings. That was the, that was the, I don't remember the revolution. Yeah. 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 But also the, 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 the judge who handed down the decision in the, in one of the Trump cases, right. Mm, What the, that the, that the, if there is a single overarching takeaway from the last 200 years of American history, it is that presidents are not Kings. So think about what is really being said by Trump here. Think about what the folks that are saying that Pence could have overturned the election are really saying here. It's just not true. Does. And, and not only that, if the shoe were on the other foot, it would be so clear to that crowd that that is not true. And so I think, you know, and I know that we're not, you know, probably not going to persuade anybody with that, but I think it's important to highlight how anathema to everything in the American experiment that is. Mm-hmm. That's okay. that thought, thought is. Moving on at the end of January, Betsy Woodruff Swan at Politico reported on a draft executive order that would have directed the Secretary of Defense to seize voting machines and would have appointed a special counsel to probe the 2020 election. It's not clear who wrote the document, but it was dated December 16th, 2020. 
and is consistent with the proposals that Sidney Powell made to Trump. She of Kraken fame. I love saying that. Oh, is the author not coming forward yet? (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) CNN reported earlier this week that there were at least two versions of executive orders, two versions of executive orders to seize voting machines. In addition to the one for the Department of Defense, there was also one directing the Department of Homeland Security to seize voting machines. CNN reported that the idea came from Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and retired Colonel Phil Waldron. And I do want to reiterate that neither executive order was ever issued, but the drafts existed. And how are you both thinking about, you know, the fact that the administration drafted multiple executive orders to use the lame duck administration, to use the interregnum to overturn the election? Yeah, here's what I'm thinking. I think that in all likelihood that was written by a mid-level to junior staffer who was told by their boss to write that. And I think that that, what that makes me think of is that you have about 30 seconds to do the right thing. Somebody was asked to do that. They thought it would go nowhere is my guess. And then they wrote it. And you know what? They are in a lot of trouble right now because they did something that could undermine the American democracy. Uh, It is such a great example of why you have to draw lines. Mm. You know, there's a lot of folks that I think were part of the administration that thought they could do some good. They were there for, for good reasons with good intent. And that's a great example of, of a line that if you cross it, there is no going back. It is really, really scary. What could have happened. It is a miracle that nobody attempted to enforce it. And, uh, you know, that is about as serious as it gets. And there's a lot of people that are in a lot of trouble as a result. You know, just as a sidebar, so while Mike's thinking about his answer to this, just as a sidebar, I just want, I, I totally agree. And it's a really great point as staff. We yeah. also, we always talk about this in terms of elected officials and their lines and their principles and yep. their right. And, and how we, you know, we expect them to choose the moral high ground, but we don't really understand. People don't understand that staff also have to go through those those same uh, moral, quandaries. moral quandaries they do. Yeah. And you know what? I want to do – I want to bookmark this and I want to come back to it because one thing that doesn't get discussed very often, uh, even in political circles because nobody will talk about it, is the reality that as a, if you want to be a campaign operative, you want to work in this business, you want to help get people elected, you are never going to agree 100% with any candidate or cause that you work for. It will not happen you will never align perfectly with anybody, which means you are in the business of making compromises. If you're not with, conscious right? of your red lines, you Correct. will cross them. Correct. If, exactly. If you don't have principles to stick to, you will, you will, you will wind up yeah. as many of the Trump staff did and his inner circle did. And I think it's very, I think it's, I think it's good and healthy, but it's not talked about. And many staff will not, many, many congressional staff, but political campaign staff, they will never speak ill of a client yeah. or a former boss, right? Because you don't burn bridges. But, but that's how many, so, so many right. staff get in trouble, right? Is, right. But I have worked for so many candidates that yeah. I disagree with on lots of things, right? Yeah. But on the things that mattered to me, we were aligned at the time. And so anyway, I, I want to bookmark that for a, for a future conversation because I think the staff angle of, you know, how do you decide how and when to draw a line when you're asked to do something you disagree with or work for a person who you think is doing the wrong thing. How, how bad does it have to be? Because there, this is, this is all sort of shades of gray and you have to know where your lines are. And this might be the wrong thing to say, but look, I empathize with that. If that was in fact a mid-level staffer or junior staffer, I empathize with that person. Think about the situation they were put in. Their boss came to them. They're probably not paid very much. Uh, you know, they probably don't have a ton of money saved up. I know that most, you know, junior staffers that I know, and, and when I was junior staffer, I certainly didn't, uh, their boss came to them and said, you need to do this, draft this thing. And they know that's unprecedented. That's not a thing that I'm supposed to do, but my boss is telling me I'm supposed to do it. So mm-hmm. can I get in trouble for this? I mean, think about how challenging that is. And I know it's easy to say, oh, I would instinctively know right off the bat. No, 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 no. 
but everyone around you is telling you it's okay and to do it. I mean, that, and that is the corrosive effect of this mentality is it normalizes this behavior and it gets people who are there or got into this ostensibly to do good. It puts them in that spot and some of them made the wrong choice. And look, I, they did the wrong thing. They deserve to be punished or prosecuted, whatever it is. But I empathize with them a little yeah, bit. It's I, hard. I mean, not to go further down this detour. I know Mike's still thinking about his answer to the actual question, but this is exactly what I've talked with Catherine, Sa- psychologist Catherine Sanderson, who's the chair of the psychology department at Amherst University. Wonderful, brilliant about her book, Why We Act. She talks exactly about this, what it takes to become a moral rebel, which is standing up, essentially standing up to peer pressure when, when, when you, when it is going to cost you something to do the right thing. Um, anyway, uh, we will put a link to that episode in the show notes. If you want to go hear about moral rebels, go ahead, Mike. Well, let me, let me comment on that too. If sure. I could jump yeah, into please. that side conversation, cause it is interesting. Um, and I've been struggling with this a little bit too, because what was clear during the Trump era and the Trump administration is everybody has that red line that they do not cross, but it's a different line. And there were a lot of people who rationalized oh, they need me, I can be the adult in the room and I can kind of work on the inside to kind of help rationalize public policy decisions and the, the, the bad that's happening in this administration. At a certain point, and it wasn't deep into the administration, it was like the first 100 days, it was very, very apparent that Donald Trump was going to be everything that he said he was and more. And so you are now complicit in that. So if you're a, a staffer at any level, that stayed one, two, three, four years into this administration, you you were well past that red line. You were complicit at this point. And what really makes it difficult for, for me and, and for a lot of the friends I made during this campaign is our line was at the very beginning. It's like when this guy crossed that line- it was in 2016. It was coming, it was yeah. coming down the escalator. Yeah. It's like, that is just wrong. That is wrong. And you all know it's wrong. And you're all compromising yourself and all the principles- Personally, you're compromising yourself, but you're also compromising all the principles that I believed you shared and fought for for 30 years. I felt a personal betrayal. So I don't have much empathy for these folks who are now realizing, oh, maybe, you know, all these December, you know, uh, uh, resignations or I resigned on the day of the insurrection and now because that was wrong. It's like, what the hell did you think? Where where, where were you? Where were you? We were literally saying this is going to happen. It's going to happen. They were in the Oval hearing these discussions. I don't have any, any empathy for that. I don't care how much you're being paid, what level you're at. If you're willing to sell out your country for any price, let just let... We have them write you a check and just jump onto the other side and let's just let's just make make haste of it all. I know top shelf Republican political operatives who were teary on election night in 2020 because of Donald Trump's victory, who then went on to teary because they were devastated that he actually won and then went on to work for him. 2016. 2016. 2016. Yeah. 2016, the administration. And also uh op- operatives who who hated him during the campaign. Prior to, as he most began his them. candidacy, and then as soon as he became the nominee, boom, all on board. Most of the right. people we know yeah. were like that. Yeah, they hated it. They hated what he was doing to the party. They yeah. knew he was a threat to the country. Yeah. But oh well, this is what I do for a living. I so got kids to feed. I got kids to feed. I, the executive director of the California Republican Party and I had a shouting match on the phone, and I and, and she was upset that I was being so critical. And I'm like, how can you possibly be doing that? And her response to me was, Are you going to give me a job? And at that moment, I realized that's what this is all about. It's all about 
you know, and so now let me answer, answer the question. Sure, yeah. Okay, let me remind everybody yeah. what the question was. Sorry to take us down the rabbit hole here, guys. It's a great discussion. It's a really it, good it discussion. about the memos. The there memos, are two right. versions of these memos. I don't believe they came from junior staff. I believe they came from Sidney Powell. And there's a reason for that. Uh, the first is because both iterations of the memo give her basically all the power. Mm. right? To oversee the entire operation. Mm. That's probably not something junior staff would do. It's not coincidental. There's also another, a couple of other clues that it's probably from Powell and or Flynn. Uh, the, the crazies that Sean Hannity was referring to in the texts mm-hmm. were, were Powell and Flynn. Mm. And he was aware of that. And he was aware of all the discussions and he was aware of the quote unquote crazy influence. Not that there was, he wasn't part of the crazy influence, but those two were rather extreme in what they were advocating in the desperate last days of Trump's weak attempts to hold on to power. The real change in between the two documents. You didn't say coup. In the coup, right. The real, the <laughs> you, real, you can say coup. <laughs> the, the real difference between the two memos that exist, and there, there may be more, is one asked the military to intervene. The other came, uh, asked the Department of Homeland Security to intervene. And the reason why that change is coming out is the, the ultimate voice of reason in the Oval Office at that time, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> was saying to Trump, you'll get impeached if you ask the military right. to intervene. Yeah. Have Department of Homeland Security do it. So that was the, the, the basic change. Yeah. Going straight up to the military is a little too cooey. Too yeah. cooey. Yeah, that, well, that's too much. Right. Overthrow the government this way. Yeah, right. Or, you know, that's more right. reasonable. Right. But the, the real damning part about this is it's clear when they're making revisions, it didn't just pop into somebody's inbox and was saved somewhere. There were discussions and changes, and this is actual hard evidence that there were numerous people who saw this. Whether we can document those discussions or not, it is yet another piece of evidence that there was a conspiracy of people discussing how to overthrow the government. And that's the real damning piece of it. It's not necessarily a smoking gun by itself, but it's definitely another brick in the wall. One of the biggest controversies we've seen over the last couple of weeks is the Spotify Joe Rogan saga. So in December, Joe Rogan had two vaccine skeptic guests on his podcast, Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough. Malone then claimed that COVID vaccines do not work and that a third of the population is basically being hypnotized, that's his quote, into believing that vaccines work using an unfounded theory called mass formation psychosis. McCullough claimed that previously infected people have permanent immunity to COVID despite the reinfections that occur. After the interviews aired, 270 healthcare workers wrote an open letter to Spotify who has the exclusive streaming rights to Rogan's podcast to fight misinformation on the platform. And then this boiled over when polio survivor Neil Young demanded that his music be removed from Spotify, specifically because of their partnership with Rogan and because he believed the show spreads false information regarding COVID-19 and vaccines. And since Young made the request, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Joni Mitchell, Nils Lofgren of the E Street Band have also asked for their music to be removed. Roxanne Gay and Mary Trump uh, have removed their podcast from the platform. Brene Brown announced that she was pausing the release of her two Spotify exclusive podcasts to learn more about Spotify's misinformation policy. 
After the pushback, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek released the platform's approach to COVID-19 rules publicly. He said that the policies have been in place internally for years, but are now publicly available. He also announced that they would add a content advisory to any podcast episode that includes a discussion about COVID-19 and will direct listeners to a dedicated COVID-19 hub. In a video shared on Instagram, Rogan said he wasn't trying to promote misinformation and said that he would try to book more experts with differing opinions after I have the controversial ones. It's a quote. Rogan also questioned how the understanding of what is misinformation has changed over the course of the pandemic. Um, and this is the part of his response video that I found particularly uh, compelling and I, and I sympathize with. He said, many of the things we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. For example, if you said eight months ago, if you, if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID, you would have been removed from social media. They would ban you from certain platforms. Now that's accepted as fact. He said, if you said, I don't think cloth masks work, you would be banned from social media. Now that's openly and repeatedly stated on CNN. He said, if you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you would be banned from many social media platforms. Now that possibility is on the cover of Newsweek. So I sympathize with this response because I think he's uh, emblematic of people's challenges keeping up with the changing information, especially around COVID. But in a world where we want people to discuss things openly, to, to, uh, to explore heterodox ideas, the answer increasingly seems to be more and more censorship. Um, the, the, this saga has renewed that debate. X, uh, X stressed that Spotify doesn't want to become a content censor and that he is committed to supporting creator expression. In, in an opinion piece for Time Magazine, former USA Today editor-in-chief uh, Joan Lippmann argued that this argument falls short in this case. It's the same argument that Facebook and Google have made, that they distribute content but aren't responsible for that content. Her argument is that this line of thinking isn't sufficient when Spotify paid $100 million for the exclusive rights for the podcast. It's, it's a publisher. So, you know, to me, um, I'm most curious about the censorship versus content moderation debate that has now seeped from social media companies or big tech to now our podcast and spoken word domain. Um, there's a there's a bunch of different ways we can take this. Um, and, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. I've been a Joe Rogan fan for a while. And that doesn't mean I like all the guests that come on his platform or that I think they're, you know, that, that, I, that I look to them as a source of truth, but I definitely look to the programming as, uh, as a source of curiosity for me and a way to explore things I hadn't been thinking about before. Um, so, Zach, I can't wait to hear all of your many hot takes on this. I mean, there's so much to dive into. I think one, one thing I just want to get out of the way, I think that there are plenty of valid critiques of Joe Rogan as a podcast host. I think that he maybe doesn't push back enough. I think he has on some questionable guests. Sure. That's definitely the truth. But one of the things I haven't heard much discussion about is the format. It's a three hour free flowing conversation that is not at all edited or lightly edited. If you're going to have an honest conversation for three hours, you are going to say something dumb. And so is the other person. And so you know, I, I think that he perhaps gets it a little worse than he should because of just the format. You know, if he if he condensed his podcast into a tight hour long episode, yeah, they would take all that out. But the thing that makes him appealing, which is that it feels honest, which is that people believe he is being straight with them, that would go away as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, 
I just don't find myself that outraged by Joe Rogan. Is that, hor- is that a horrible thing to say? Well, it depends on where you say it, <laughs> really. Yeah. I mean, if you Man. say it on Twitter, yeah, but you're going to get some hate hate comments. Look, you know, he's a he's a relatively interesting guy. He's got some interesting hobbies. He's not my cup of tea. Um, he should be more responsible with the platform that he has, yes. But the solution to problems is not to just say, don't talk about them, right? It's to engage in the conversation, not to shut somebody down. And so I think the response... It actually shows why people are flocking to Joe Rogan. You know, and I think also many of the critics of Joe Rogan, they do not have the credibility to be critics. You know, many of the people who are condemning his misinformation campaign the most were prominent supporters of a invasion of the the second invasion of Iraq. Uh, you know, they have misled the public themselves and they're saying, Oh, but this guy's misinformation is worse than mine, essentially. And people aren't buying it. And like, look, I don't listen to Joe Rogan. I like, I like he was, he's a good UFC commentator. That's just a fact. <laughs> but I don't think that people are actually outraged at Joe Rogan. I think the bigger issue is that you have these massive tech companies and there's all this information being disseminated on them and nobody knows what to do about it. And it's a lot easier to point to Joe Rogan because he's got a big audience and say, that's the bad guy. And maybe he is, but he's not the big bad guy. You know, he's not the boss. The boss is Facebook. The boss is Spotify. The boss is Google. And until they figure it out, doesn't matter if they if they ban Joe Rogan today and he never does another podcast there will be another Joe Rogan and he will be on Spotify or he will be on Facebook or he will be on Google and there's nothing that's being done about that and that's the biggest issue don't lose sight of the forest through the trees folks and i think you you hit on something important i think which is the reason he has a, a large audience and the the reason his audience follows him and watches his content is is this mistrust in traditional media sources because they 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 have to your point, they have been lied to. There have, there have been things that were tr- that that we believed to be true at the time, and then turned out not to be true. Um, and uh, and increasingly now, because of click based journalism, there is there is less and less incentive. Actually, there's more and more incentive to not issue retractions and corrections when the media gets things wrong, and that just further erodes trust in the institution of journalism. Um, but also think about his audience, right? His audience is overwhelmingly young men, right? And that's, okay. is that, that's established. What is it that Joe Rogan is doing that is attracting that audience? And what is it about the other outlets that those that that demographic doesn't trust them? And should there perhaps be a little bit of soul searching over why Joe Rogan has kind of become this, I don't know, almost a guru to, to a whole generation of young men? I mean, maybe I'm overthinking it, but it seems to me that the flaws and the faults are not solely with Joe Rogan. I don't Mike's know. got a storm brewing over there. Uh, yeah, I think this is there's a lot of false logic at play here. Okay. And let me explain why. My view is that the, the quote you gave from Joe Rogan is the perfect argument for license hmm. to say whatever the hell you want in a way that establishes a faux credibility with everybody else. Hmm. Are scientists wrong? Yes. That is literally part of That's the part. scientific method. That is part of the process is being wrong. You test your hypothesis and you're wrong. That does not mean that a podcaster, they don't have the same epidemiological expertise as a Dr. Fauci. And I'm not making a case for the personalities. I'm trying to to draw a, a correlation here. The problem with today's society is we are continually seeking license to say, I am as much of an expert because of my opinion as everybody else. That explains Joe Rogan. Yeah. It's some the, the great tweet I saw is like, what's the big deal about Joe Rogan? When in the seventies, I had, a, I had a, a friend who had a 27 year old big brother who smoked pot all day and was talking. <laughs> 
talking about how the Mayan civilization actually created cellular phone technology, right? Like the Joe Rogans have always been there. This yeah. guy's just got a platform, right. you know, selling and talking a bunch of bullshit. And I'm not saying I've never listened to Joe Rogan. I don't judge anybody who does. I think that's great if you want to, but let's not buy into this false idea that it's, it's equivalent to science. Yeah. Right. Science by definition is wrong, but you go with the best information that you have at a given time, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean that you have the same credibility as somebody who has spent 50 years in this area of expertise to try to protect the public health. No, your opinion is not as valid. It's not. And we need to stop as a society permitting that and saying that. And because it's so easy to communicate on so many mediums to so many siloed individuals, what we're doing is we're seeing a flattening of expertise, a loss of it, as our friend Tom Nichols would say, where everybody who doesn't even have any legitimate argument or space to be in there is saying my voice is just as credible because you were wrong in the past. No, that's not how it works. Yes, I, I, I completely agree with all of that. I mean, I think, I think this is one of those situations where everybody's right. I mean, Joe Rogan's right to issue uh, an apology such as it is and tell people how he's going to add a disclaimer and have on uh, more mainstream guests explain that the views of this guest do not represent the scientific consensus or the uh, consensus of experts, right? Uh, I think Spotify is right to stand behind not just Joe Rogan, but their investment as a a for-profit entity. I think that the podcasters and the content creators pulling their material from Spotify are perfectly within their rights and, and right to do what they think is right in this situation. I think all of those things are good and healthy. Here's where I have a little trouble. The White House has weighed in with Press Secretary Jen Psaki saying Spotify has taken positive steps, but there is more that can be done. And she said there's more that should be done. Uh, What is the White House's role? Or should the White House even have a role in this news event? It has the bully pulpit, and I think it should be used. Um, Look, uh, I I, I think that I, I agree with you to a certain point, Ron, where I think I might part ways is when we're talking about matters of public health, right? There are limits to free speech. I do agree with you that everybody has a right to do what they're doing and they should have that right and it should not be infringed. I, I do get a little queasy when I hear people putting out misinformation that is actually killing people. Mm. Um, th- that to me, that's a line. <laughs> and I think it's debatable. Even then it's debatable. I mean, I'm a, I'm and a pretty, where that line is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Most importantly, where that line is. And I'm a pretty big advocate of more speech is better than not, but that doesn't mean that all speech should be permitted. It, it, you're not seeing an eight Chan types discussion on Joe Rogan. And if, if you were, would we be okay with that? Probably not, but you would, you, you would see more people pulling away from it. In many ways, that's the marketplace at work. And that's actually why I'm interested in the Spotify discussion. It's because, and we've talked about this a little bit before the traditional boycott does not work, right? It, uh, companies and businesses are, they're too flat. The networks are too big. It's not, they're not really impact them enough. It doesn't impact them really at all. But what it can do is it can limit future growth for a public company, which is extremely damaging. And it's kind of what happened with Uber. The rise of Lyft was because of a social push against Uber. 
And that same type of thing can happen with Spotify. Joe Rogan alone is probably enough to carry Spotify. Right. Right. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So it's not like they're trying to shut down Spotify, but you can, you know, vote with your art and move it somewhere else and say no. And enough people do that. You can see some economic consequence at a minimum, at a maximum, you are building a different alternative place where like-minded people who do not accept this speech as acceptable to go to spend their dollars. Yes. Okay. So, and you and I have talked about the corporation as being a very um, much more responsive input to popular demand than even the levers of government are now, right? And that's a very interesting topic. We'll we'll also put a link to that episode if you want to go listen to that. But I would love to hear your thoughts on the point Zach was making, which Mm -hmm. is that if Joe Rogan left Spotify tomorrow, his audience would go with him. I want to talk about the market demand for the kind of conversations that Joe Rogan is having. And you touched on this earlier, which is sort of uh, the need to feel validated, I think. Yeah. And I was going to jump into your point of the conversation. I think that Zach, of course, is right. That's absolutely the right thing. The missing component here that we don't talk about is the lack of responsibility to one another. Is is the It used to be that when somebody was pushing the boundaries of social norms, we would have a communal discussion about whether that was right or that was wrong is Hustler Magazine doing the right thing or the wrong thing mm. and it becomes a real you know lightning rod. Yeah. Now we don't have that discussion as a, as a as a community or as a nation or as a country because we're not really one community anymore, right? right? But and so when that happens is we 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 lack the re- the social responsibility that a social contract required we have to say, hey, maybe this is not good because it's killing people. Yeah, it's getting me audience. Yeah, I can get, become a bigger podcaster. Yeah, maybe I can make another $20, 30000000 million doing this. But is that worth killing a few extra 100,000 Americans? Some people are saying, yeah, it is. And, and, and I, I, I want to say good for them, but, but no, not good for them. Like that should be a line where we have an obligation to each other by not putting out things that are quantifiably known to be false under the rubric that, hey, maybe someday we'll learn that it's true (laughs) when we know people are dying today. And that kind of license is the bastardization of freedom that I think our country is suffering from right now is I have the freedom to do whatever the hell I want as long as I get what I want out of it. More money, more power, more listeners, more viewers, more clicks. And, And that is a very different place than American society has ever been in than at this moment in time. Totally agree, except the uh, I think you made a really good point, which is that the the idea that something might turn out to be true something might turn out to be true in the future mm-hmm. you're right it's a perfect rationale to say whatever you want as irresponsible as it might be. however, those things did turn out to be true, and they were heterodox views at the time and then when so when when those people say, "See, we were right about these things, whether it was science hadn't caught up yet or we had terrible messaging from authorities. What, whatever the reason, those people are now validated, which continues to erode trust in the institutions that are responsible for distributing accurate information. And there's no acknowledgement of that. And there's no acknowledgement of that. These are the same people that were push, pushing hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, injecting bleach, and inserting <laughs> light into your... <laughs> okay? So, so, so yes, a broken clock is right twice you know, every 24 hours. My point is this, 
there is nothing wrong with have good, having good scientific discussion. And there was disagreement in the scientific community about this. These are people that have spent their entire lives working towards this question. And the scientific method, again, is built in the idea that your hypothesis is wrong. But what if we did not make the mistake of putting people together and wearing a cloth mask would two or three or 5% more of an infection rate during some of these peaks killed thousands of more people? Yes, quantifiably it would have. I think that is worth making that mistake. That is the, that, and I think that is the point is the scientists are saying, here's the technology we have with a novel virus, with something we have never seen before. And the cost of losing lives is worth this policy decision. That kind of a determination from experts is far different than a podcaster who is saying, this is what I think, and oh, buy my ivermectin brand because this is what I think worked, and I took it, and I got all better. Okay. What then, who then had the responsibility to do things differently at the time? If you could go back in time, was it Joe Rogan? Was it Spotify? Was it authorities? Who, how do you then, where's the stick? That's my question because that's where I that's where I struggle. Well, let me say this: we know historically that pandemic strikes a global population usually once every hundred years. The hundredth year was up, right? Obama was planning for this. We all knew that something was going to happen. In my estimation, and maybe just become from my life and my experience, I would rather have the government overreact in instances where there could have been a mutation that was far more contagious and far more deadly and having people prepared when we had never seen this thing before than not. This was not a simple, and let me get, look, the virus of misinformation on electoral campaigns and balloting, we're seeing the damage that that is doing. That's not necessarily going to kill anybody directly. I can see more room for saying, okay, let's have that discussion than on something that we quantifiably know is causing death. Like people are dying. So when that is the case, I would rather have the government overreact and then walk stuff back. To me, that doesn't undermine the credibility of government. It actually adds to the credibility of government. And just because somebody can then come back and say, well, see, I was right. You were right on one thing out of the 50 things that you were suggesting. Statistics would suggest, of course, you were going to get something right. And so, again, to me, there used to be there used to be a certain trust in institutions where people would say, hey, maybe they're not exactly right, but they're right enough. And my obligation to other people, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. We're not willing to do that anymore. Yeah. I would rather have people die than be inconvenienced by putting on a mask and going into Walmart. And a cloth mask does not work as much as an N95 mask, but does it work 1% or 2% better? Yeah. Had 30% of the population that was not wearing a mask put it on to have 1% or 2% effects with exponential growth, would it have an impact? Yes, it would have. So, you know, it was the best technology we had at the time, given the knowledge that we knew on something that the human species had never seen before. You make uh, make a mistake, government. That, look, I'm, I'm very, very critical of government. The mistakes, right, right, right. Which but is when why, people are dying. I, I'm there with you, right? Which is why I'm, I know Zach. I, you, I know you have. I, yeah. So <laughs> mm. I'm gonna jump in. So you're totally okay. right. It's, it's public health. It's public, and it is and it is serious. And that to me is why it's so interesting how we draw the distinctions and how we choose to prioritize who we want to hold accountable. Right? Who is a larger purveyor of misinformation about public health, but also just the world at large? Facebook or Joe Rogan? It's not close. 
It's not close, right? Well, not only that, but we but focus on Joe Rogan because it's easier because he's an individual and it's easier to hold an individual accountable yeah. than an entity, a, you know, a multinational, you know, practically functioning government of its own like Facebook. It's a trillion dollar industry. And it's, again, it's easier to hold Joe Rogan accountable. And you're right, Mike. I think, I think I've heard what you had to say and you're right. And we should, and we should do more and it should be taken seriously, but there's also more that we need to do in conjunction with that. And the thing that seems to frustrate, that frustrates me is that folks will hold Joe Rogan accountable and then kind of stop. It won't be a continued conversation about how, like, where do we go from here? What's next? How do we prevent the next Joe Rogan from gaining that platform for the next Joe Rogan from doing the same thing all over again? How do we educate people or how do we prevent them from getting to the point where they're already buying this misinformation? The trust is already eroded by the time they get there, you know, because of a Facebook or a Spotify or a Google. I worry about making the direct connection between, between speech and uh, harm, hmm. physical harm, in this case, death. I worry about making that connection so concrete that it's much easier to regulate speech, especially if we're making an argument that the government should be the one regulating speech. How do we hmm. go about making that decision? Uh, that's what, that's what worries me. Yeah. I don't, I, because and I've said this before, I don't buy the connection that speech is violence, which is a very sort yeah. of modern progressive mantra. Um, and, and, uh, that I, I don't, I would rather err on, the speech side of that spectrum than uh, have language police or content police. If, if that's where that road goes, I'm, yeah. I'm not comfortable with that. That's you, what, that's what worries. You me. know what I find helpful though? Just there's not an easy solution and there's no. not a perfect solution for this and there's never going to be. And yeah. so one way or another, people are going to feel limited speech wise or there's going to be public health impacts and, and we're never going to get it quite right, but we should be trying. And to Mike's point, we should be, we, we don't try anymore because we're not thinking about others. We're thinking is so, I mean, it's so over the top individualistic and we have to be trying to figure out what that answer is. It's and, and the extremes lead to bad places on either end. So what that middle ground is, I don't know, but I hope we can figure it out. We've also seen plenty of book banning noise across the country with the banning of classics like To Kill a Mockingbird, which I just saw Aaron Sorkin's uh, adaptation of this um, on, on Broadway, and it was masterful um, with Jeff Daniels as the lead, uh, and books that tell first-person accounts of the Holocaust. So, Mike, on the culture front, and by the way, we're talking about all of this, the Spotify thing, because it is culture and because we politics is now culture. Politics is now a culture war. That's the whole reason we chose this topic today, because this is active. This is probably shaping more people's opinions of, of politics than January 6th right now. Mm-hmm. Definitely shaping more people's opinions of politics than January 6th. Mm-hmm. So this is a, it's, a, it's a big deal. On the culture front, what does this portend in our politics? How will politicians co-opt this for political gain? Well, the first thing is, I mean, book, book burning is a primitive form of this discussion that we're having about Spotify, right? It was kind of the, the first when people became literate. This was the way you literally tried to stop knowledge and information and other ideas from moving. It was a form of regulation uh, done in a very violent way way with a lot of pageantry. And most importantly, and here's where it gets really, really scary, voluntarily saying, I'm choosing not to think about something else. As people literally would bring their books and throw them into the pile. This just happened in Tennessee, I think, last night or the other day. Um, look, I, I think that really, and you, you set this up perfectly, this is, this is about 
a culture war. And we are in a culture war, right? When I was a kid in the 1992 Republican National Convention and listening to Pat Buchanan kind of get up there with this small sliver of the Republican Party, and everybody's like, whoa, that was was weird. That was a hell of a speech. (laughs) And it was kind of growing over time, right? It's now, of course, the dominant thought in the Republican Party. But book burning is, is a sign of voluntary ignorance. When people are choosing to be ignorant, society, that that society is in deep trouble, deep trouble. I think one way to counter this in a way that has not, I'm surprised no one's thought about this, is in communities where that's happening, we should be promoting those banned books in a way where we give free copies to anybody in that zip code who wants one. Yeah. You can do that now, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that's easy. And there's some bookstores are doing exactly that. There's actually a youth organization. I think it's Voters of Tomorrow that is doing that. They're sending, yeah. you know, 400 copies to a bunch of the students and, and that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, if, if you request it, we'll send it to you free. I'm sure there's plenty of people that would, would donate to that. I think that's probably the best way to do it. And the, the, the irony is that it um, will probably get more readership. Absolutely. Than I was just thinking that. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yes. And, and to, to drive that in there, it's again, it's a sign that technology is not allowing things like boycotts to work anymore. The idea of, of book burning really shouldn't work anymore either. The, the real fear is that it is a sign yeah. of people choosing voluntary ignorance yes. and subscribing to more of a cult than anything based off of intellect or wisdom or intelligence. Yes. And that's that the answer to the direct answer to your question on how politicians can manipulate that is unlimited. <laughs> so and none of which are good. Right. So the so there is uh the 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 way to get something the way to drive up demand for something is to is to ban it or to make it um sort of uh inaccessible, right? So does that go for the source material from the scientists on Joe Rogan's podcast as well as To Kill a Mockingbird, Zach? That, that's the thing there. Right? I mean, so one, banning books is bad and we shouldn't do it. And yeah. I, I would hope that would go without saying, but I guess it doesn't right now. Banning uh, information. But in it's, it's not, a, it's not about the books. Huh? It's about the signal that it sends, right? Yeah. That's what it's all about. I mean, yes. and, and the signal is like- There are some ideas that we don't want. Yeah, Not just that there are some ideas that we don't want, but this is how we think here. And get on board or get on out right. of here, you know. And and there is a long history of that, specifically in the American Southeast and to a lesser extent the Midwest. Um, and I think that we know where this leads because we can see this throughout history. I mean, I recently reread H. Uh, L. Mencken's Dispatches from the Scopes Trial, Ooh. and I think that it is a relevant book for the time. And no spoilers, but highly recommend giving a read. It's called uh, A Religious Orgy in Tennessee, and the parallels are eerie. Uh, perhaps Mencken was not as charitable as he could have been to some of the folks involved, but it is very funny, uh, because how, I mean, it's, it's, it's so scary and it's so sad that you have to laugh a little bit because otherwise it's hard to make sense of, um, not to say that you should take it lightly, but it is so frightening and where you go from book banning and book burning is never good. The next step is scary. Yeah. Uh, and Mencken, Mencken and the scope spunk trial is really an interesting uh, analogy because it was really the first time in this country where we were starting to see this rejection of modernity. It was a rejection of the change in culture and the rejection of the change in values. The fact that it was happening 
in the midst of the industrial age should not surprise anybody. It was the advent of a significant social transformation, which is precisely what we are experiencing now. And when human beings undergo these types of rapid transformations that we are not biologically constituted for, that took us thousands of years to evolve to this point, and then in two, three, four, five years, we're experiencing things that took thousands and thousands and thousands of years to get to, you immediately biologically retrench to a very strict, structured way of understanding and limiting growth. It's like going back to the Luddites, right? It's destroying progress, destroying different thinking, gives me some sort of comfort and certainty that I need in an uncertain world. Yeah. Change is scary. The the culture war is an information war. The information war is about what is is the correct way of thinking. Not even Mm. what is, not even what is true. Because I don't think there is an in, there isn't an inherent search for truth that comes with scrutiny. Correct. It's what is the correct way of thinking. Mm. It, more so, it's also people who believe that the future can be better because of their ability to think. Yeah, are much more optimistic about the future. People that are far more pessimistic are retrenching and saying, "No, we. I want to. I, I want to regress. Mm-hmm. I want to make America great again. <laughs> right? Let's go backwards yeah. forty or fifty years yeah. to give me that comfort and certainty in a world that I can operate with, because I will be irrelevant in the workplace. Right. This is too I, scary. I, my 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 traditional male role is becoming irrelevant." My gender is being, uh, or my race is being questioned right. in this time when we're d- rapidly diversifying. All of that unsettling feeling of change is causing that chaos. And, and as a result, you seek to limit and narrow what is right and what is wrong. And the danger there is what is wrong is evil and should be destroyed. Right. And that's what we're witnessing. Right. We are just not. We are no longer an optimistic nation. And we've talked about how important yeah. optimistic thinking is. Yeah. And I mean, that is just further evidence that we are looking backwards. We are looking to retreat. We're looking to regress. Uh, we are not looking to grow and expand and move forward. And that's really sad. And it's tough for the kid. I, I mean, I really feel bad for the, the young people growing up in this environment where the expectation is not that the future could have endless possibilities. It's we're just trying to hold on. I mean, what is my place yeah. in this emerging world? Yeah. Yeah. What is my place in this emerging world? It's a tough time to be a young person. It's a tough time to be an old person, guys. <laughs> <laughs> now that we are up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, a couple of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching. Zach, what do you have under the radar? Man, I'm watching... Uh... Pam and Tommy. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. You know, a lot of people aren't even going to know what you're talking about. So, well, look, you know, Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee, the drummer from Motley Crue used to have a a bit of a relationship and they made a mini series on it, about it on Hulu. And from what I can tell so far, it's entertaining. I think in terms of the news, what I'm watching, Mm -hmm. uh, some big news today. Uh, It it sounds like the the U.S. military uh, killed the leader of ISIS. That's a big deal. You know, I, I I don't know the full details yet. It just broke before we started recording. Um, and certainly worth keeping an eye on. Also, I saw f- the artist formerly known as Facebook, now known as Meta, dropped 25% today uh, before before we started recording. That might have since bounced back. But uh, when you lose a quarter of your market cap and you're a trillion-dollar-plus company, that's a big deal. So worth keeping an eye on. I'm looking at Shasta County, California, yeah. one of our more northernmost counties. Um, in California. In California. Uh, the Board of Supervisors, um, a small local you know agency board, uh, was overtaken by a militia-backed group politically. 
uh, recalled a Reagan Republican um, because he was not uh, conservative enough. Uh, he wasn't anti-government enough. And by anti-government, I mean anti-government. And so I think you're going to start seeing the culmination of this coalition of proud boys who are very involved with this, um, um, alt-right figures who have literally demonstrated a commitment to start taking over um, local government agencies start to materialize and the threat and the change of what is happening in our society and our government is not just happening at the Oval Office level. It's happening at the local government level, and we'll be keeping a close eye on, on how that continues. Run for school board, people. Yeah, run for office. School board. You should come talk about school board races sometimes. Ooh, huh? I don't know. That's probably just a politicology plus thing. <laughs> that's, that's my real insight. <laughs> Zach and Mike, before we go to the after party, AKA Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you on the internet? Uh, at Zach CZ on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've turned over a new leaf. I'm trying to bring a little bit more optimism online. I don't think there's enough of it. There's not a ton to be optimistic about, but I'm doing my best to <laughs> inject a little positivity into some, some dark stuff. Numbers Madrid? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm at Ron Steslo on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>